Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. The listener's commentary seeks to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching through the books of the New Testament to help you study the Bible for yourself so that you can know Jesus and serve Jesus and follow Jesus more fully. And if you want more resources to help you dig in beyond the audio, you can go to the listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, and you can check out the Bible Study Hub and some of the other resources there. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. And in the context, the author is developing the theme of the superiority of the new covenant. He introduced that theme in chapter 8, and there he said that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. That's chapter 8, verse 6. But he didn't actually explain how he became that. How did Jesus become the mediator of a better covenant? Well, that's what he's been explaining in Hebrews chapter 9. So in the first chunk of Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, the author has shown that what Jesus offered by his sacrifice was his own blood. And that's how he became the mediator of a better covenant. But how does that work? Well, that's where the author is going now here in Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. He begins now to explain in this present section how Jesus' death actually made him the mediator of a better covenant. And he's going to do that by showing uh, that ratifying covenants requires death. And he'll show that what was necessary under the, the old covenant and the new, and how the offering made by means of the death uh, under the new, the death of Jesus, was actually better than all of the offerings under the old. So that's the subject of this present section. How does Jesus' death make him a mediator of a better covenant. And so the author says this in verse 15. For this reason, notice that, that points back to the points previously made in 9, 1 through 14. Because Jesus offered his own blood, because he did that in the heavenly tabernacle, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, what's the first covenant? Well, the first covenant is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And so since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So what this verse is suggesting is that there was all the animal sacrifices under the first covenant, but they didn't actually provide full and final a redemption, and thus did not enable people to inherit the eternal uh, promises. And so there needed to be a death to take care of that. And what the author of Hebrews is suggesting is that death was the, the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Um, the main idea here in, for this section is the whole idea of a death taking place leading to the establishment of a new covenant which then brings redemption and allows people to inherit the promise of e eternal salvation. And so he's going to go on and explain then how that works. How do covenants work? And this is actually quite helpful to us because covenants and how they worked were actually more familiar to the original audience than they are to us. And so if we pay close attention to what he says, it actually is really helpful to us so we can kind of track more fully with what he's saying and thinking. So how do covenants work? 
Well, look at verses 16 and 17. He says, For where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when people are dead. It's never enforced while the one who made it lives. Now, this is explaining how covenants work in some fashion. Nevertheless, these two verses, verses 16 and 17, um, have some real interpretive difficulties that scholars have debated. And in short, that debate revolves around how is the author of Hebrews using the word covenant here? The the Greek word diatheke actually can have two meanings. On one hand, it can be used for a covenant, as in the Old Testament Hebrew understanding of covenant. It's the word that's regularly translated in the Septuagint for the covenants that God made with the patriarchs and with Moses and with Israel. And so it can mean covenant. But in the standard Greek-speaking world of the first century, when the author of Hebrews is writing, this particular word also meant something like will, as in last will and testament. And the problem here is, in Hebrews, that the exact way the author describes things doesn't precisely fit either with what we know about covenants during the Old Testament or wills among the Romans and Greeks in the first century. And so you get the scholarly debate. Uh, I will try to clarify as I walk down through it how I think we should read it. But in a nutshell, I think we should stick with the idea of covenant, not will, because that's the overall context here in Hebrews. He's talking about the new covenant. And that's the whole context here. And it's the whole biblical context, the old and the new covenant. So I think we need to stick with the idea of covenant, not will. And even though there are some subtle differences in the way the author of Hebrews explains how covenants work, I think those differences are motivated by the crucial point that the author is making, the point about how the new covenant was ratified by the death of the Messiah. And what that means is then he words things just a little bit uniquely to help make his point clear. So I'll try to show how I think that works as we walk down through these verses and explain them. So let's go back through verses 16 and 17 and work out some of the details. And just recall before we look at that, that in verse 15, The author has just said, a death has taken place for redemption in connection with making of the new covenant, specifically the death of the Messiah. So now in verse 16, he sets out to explain that further. He says, for, notice for, that's explaining. He's explaining what he said in verse 15. For where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Generally speaking, in the Old Testament, the way to make a covenant uh, required a death. In fact, the, the way the Hebrew actually reads when it talks about making covenants in the Old Testament is not making a covenant, but cutting a covenant. Because you would, for example, look at uh, Genesis and the covenant God makes with Abraham, how he cuts these animals in half and creates a blood path. And he, God himself, by theophany, walks through the blood path, essentially saying, uh, let happen to me what happened to these animals should I not keep the the promises of this covenant. That's the way covenants worked in the ancient world. You would cut a covenant by cutting an animal, and thus there was always blood. And the idea was, may what happened to this animal happen to me should I fail to keep this covenant. 
What's fascinating there in that covenant with Abraham that I mentioned a second ago is that God doesn't make Abraham walk through the blood path. God himself does it. And he he basically is pledging, I pledge my own life, if you will, uh, on the promises of this covenant I'm making with Abraham. And so the death of the animal represents the death of the covenant maker in uh, ancient Near Eastern thinking in the Old Testament. And this is what the author of Hebrews is referring to here in verse 16, when he says, for where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And what's really important, and it's not obvious in the translation is, the Greek is actually a little more ambiguous than the way the translation is works. They've actually, in my opinion, over-translated it, trying to clarify something that the author of Hebrews left a little ambiguous for a specific reason. So here's a, here's a more literal translation so you can hear the ambiguity. This is what verse 16 literally says. For where there is a covenant... Death is necessary to be borne by the one making it or to be carried by the one making it. You can hear the ambiguity. It's not that the one making it necessarily has to die, which is the way this translation uh, reads. It's that there has to be a death and he has to be responsible for it. He has to bear it or carry it. Um, That's the ambiguity. So that's the way covenants actually worked. You you take an animal from your flock or your herd, you kill it, and you say, this animal embodies, represents what will happen to me should I not keep this covenant. Then, in verse 17, the author of Hebrews further explains this, saying, for, again, explaining, for a covenant is valid only when people are dead, for it's never in force while the one who made it lives. And once again, the translators trying to put this in good English, freed this up. But in doing so, they actually added some words and their attempt was noble to try to clarify it. But once again, it, I think, removed some of the way the author was specifically saying things for his point. And translation always involves some level of interpretation. So let me give you once again a more literal translation so you can hear what he says. What he says literally is, for a covenant over the dead or for a covenant over dead bodies is firm or legit. That's the idea. Think again of that covenant cutting ceremony and you've got dead bodies right in front of you and that's what makes the covenant solid. So he doesn't say, as this translation reads, a covenant's only valid when people are dead. He says a covenant is a covenant over dead bodies is valid, is firm, is legit. Um, and then he goes on and says, since it's never legit, never solid or strong when the covenant maker lives. So literally, in an uh, Old Testament covenant cutting ceremony, the covenant maker still lived, literally. But his death was embodied by the death of the animal with the pledge that what happened to that animal would happen to him should he fail to keep the covenant. That animal represented and embodied his death. So why does the author of Hebrews use slightly imprecise language in the way he words it here? Well, I, I suspect it's because of the point he is, he is making. He has already said in chapter 9, verse 12, that Christ offered his own blood. Now here, 
he's working back up to that point and he's working up specifically to develop that point more fully. He'll do that in verses 23 through 28 when he emphasizes Jesus, Jesus offering his own blood uh, for all sins for all time. So he's working up to making that point. And so he words things here imprecisely to really so that it can apply to both. And here's how it works. What was true kind of representatively and symbolically under the Old Testament cutting of a covenant ceremony, right? Animals embodying the death of the covenant maker. What's true uh, in that way symbolically and representatively is true actually in how the new covenant was made. The, The covenant maker literally himself died. God and the person of Jesus died. And so he uses slightly uh, vague and imprecise language so it effectively works for both kinds of covenants. The old cutting a covenant ceremony where the animal embodied the death of the covenant maker and then the way the new covenant was made with the literal death of the covenant maker. So to summarize, the main point so far in verses 15 and 17 is this, that death and blood were necessary to ratify covenants. That's the main point he's made so far. Then this is where he's going. In verses 18 through 22, he's going to connect this truth about ratifying covenants to the covenant ratification ceremony for the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. Then in verses 23 through 28, he'll apply this truth to the new covenant in the Messiah. So here's what he says in verses 18 and following. He says, therefore, that is, since death and blood is necessary to ratify covenants, therefore, even the first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, was not inaugurated without blood. Blood was necessary to ratify and inaugurate the the old Mosaic covenant. For, verse 19, when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book, that is the book of the covenant itself, and all the people gathered around saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. This, in verses 19 through 20, is a summary of the covenant ratification ceremony recorded in Exodus 24. So you can go back to Exodus 24 and you can read the entire story that is just mentioned here in brief to jog our memory of when Moses put the old covenant into effect, when he inaugurated the old covenant. So this is how he did it. And this is the a specific and the most pertinent example of the covenant-making principles he's just summarized. There's got to be a death and there's got to be blood. So for the Mosaic covenant, the old first covenant, a death happened and blood was necessary. And here's how that played out when that covenant was inaugurated. He continues then in verses 21 and 22 to describe how, in fact, under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, everything was cleansed with blood. And so he says in verse 21, and in the same way, he, that is Moses, with that same mixture of blood and wool and all that stuff, right, sprinkled the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And so the tabernacle itself, all the instruments necessary for carrying out the rituals of the old covenant, they're all sprinkled with blood. And then he says in verse 22, almost all things, 
are cleansed with blood according to the law. And the reason he says almost is because there were rare exceptions where something was cleansed without blood. But virtually everything under the old covenant required blood on a regular basis to make sure it was cleansed from the defilement of sin and ritual impurity. And so virtually everything is cleansed without blood. And then he ends by emphasizing the point saying, in fact, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Again, that line, uh, which, which, which was true ritually and symbolically and um, provisionally under the old covenant, is actually true fully and completely in the Messiah. And he's building up to that. And so he recognizes that the old covenant actually did provide a measure of forgiveness and some ritual cleansing. And, and it was effective as far as it went. It just was provisional and not final and ultimate. Um, and so now he's emphasized that for the Old Covenant. And so under the Old Covenant, guess what? Uh, death and blood were necessary. Cleansing was done through blood. Uh, forgiveness came through the shedding of blood. So death and blood were necessary for ratifying the covenant and maintaining the covenant under uh, the Old Covenant. Uh, and remember, the main question that the author of Hebrews is answering in this section Verses 15 through 28 is this. How does Jesus' death make him a mediator of a better covenant? Well, now in verses 23 through 28, we get the answer. He's worked up to this um, by talking about how covenants in general were made, how the old covenant itself was ratified and conducted. Well, now we get the answer of how does Jesus' death make him a mediator, not just of a covenant, but of a better covenant. The answer he's going to show us is that his sacrifice that inaugurated the new covenant was a better sacrifice, and thus it, was, it meant for a better covenant. And so look what he says, verse 23. He says, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these things. Remember, he talked about the copies being the earthly tabernacle and its furniture and its tools. He described that in verses 1 through 14. And so the earthly tabernacle is the copies. They had to be cleansed with these kinds of things, with the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on them on an ongoing basis every year at the Day of Atonement. That's how they were cleansed. So it was necessary for the copies, the earthly tabernacle, uh, to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What are the heavenly things? Well, in the, the uh, way the author's describing things, you have the heavenly things being the heavenly tabernacle, of which the earthly tabernacle is a copy. In other words, the, the presence of God itself is described as a heavenly tabernacle. And so the heavenly things here is motivated by the way he's using the language. You have the earthly tabernacle. That's a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. The earthly uh, tabernacle had to be cleansed by these kinds of sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats. But the heavenly tabernacle itself was cleansed by better sacrifices. And where the author of Hebrews is ultimately going to take this is um, to the idea that what ultimately needed cleansed is people itself. That's the point he's going to make in, in what follows. People are the thing that really 
actually needed cleansed. In fact, it was also human sin and human uncleanness that made the earthly tabernacle defiled. And thus, the earthly tabernacle needed cleansing ritually on the Day of Atonement every year. So that's the key idea here. We're talking about cleansing, final cleansing, full cleansing from uncleanness and sin. And it's important to make sure we don't miss in all our questions about the language that the heavenly tabernacle, the cleansing that was provided for this new covenant was done with better sacrifices. And it's those better sacrifices now that he goes on to explain in verse 24. He says this, in what way was the the sacrifices of the new covenant better? Well, verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. That is, it's not the human-made tabernacle. He's already talked about this in verses 1 through 14. A mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, into the very throne room of God itself, into the very presence of God itself. So Christ didn't enter into an earthly, uh, shadowy copy of the, the real throne room of God and the real presence of God. No, he entered into the true one, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the first way that his sacrifice is better is that the location is better. The true tabernacle, heaven itself, God's throne room, that's where he appears now as our mediator to represent us in the very presence of God himself. Not only that, but the sacrifice itself was better. Look at verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, daily in the case of the daily sacrifices, yearly in the case of the Day of Atonement ceremony under the Old Covenant, right? Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. And so every year on the Day of Atonement, the priest has to go in and he has to do the whole cleansing ritual for himself, for the people. He has to do cleansing rituals for the tabernacle and the instruments of the tabernacle every year. Not Jesus. Jesus didn't have to do that over and over and over again. Otherwise, verse 26, he would have needed to suffer often since the very foundation of the world. I mean, if his sacrifice you know, needed to be done multiple times over and over again, then we would have had to go clear back to the beginning for sin and do this over and over and over again since the beginning of the world. But it, it didn't work that way. His sacrifice was more powerful than that. Didn't need to be done over and over again. So the middle of verse 26, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of, of himself. And so now at the consummation of the ages, that is um, at the culmination of God's plan, that phrase consummation of the ages represents really a biblical view of history. The basic idea of consummation is culmination. There was the promise, uh, the age of promise that went from Abraham all the way up to Jesus, the Messiah. And so that Old Testament time period was the age of promise. But with Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit, now the age of fulfillment has begun. So Jesus was the climax of the Old Covenant, and he inaugurated the New Covenant and the final stage in God's plan of redemption. That's the the sense of the phrase, consummation of the ages. And he appeared, 
here at the, the culmination of the ages to put away sin. And the basic idea of put away there is to annul or to cancel it out. And so he appeared to annul, put away, to do away with sin. And how did he do that? By the sacrifice of himself. And so it's not just that the location of his sacrifice was better, heaven itself, but the actual sacrifice itself was better because he offered him very, his very self. Just as God had embodied in the, the covenant promises to Abraham, look, if this covenant in any way is ever broken, let this happen to me, not to you, Abraham, but to me. God walks through that blood path in the covenant-making promise with Abraham. Well, in the person of Jesus, he literally um, took on the consequences of the failure of, of his people to keep the covenant, and he dies in their place. And so his sacrifice itself is a superior sacrifice. Now, since this happened at the culmination of the ages, well, what's left to happen? Like, if we're at the final stage of God's plan and Jesus' uh, sacrifice of himself was the very culmination of the ages, well, what's left? Obviously, things are still moving along, so what comes next? We'll look at verses 27 and 28. And, he says, just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes the judgment, that's just the way it works with human beings, right? You live your life, you die, and then the next thing that happens is judgment, the evaluation of your life. So also, verse 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So that's what's left. Yes, the offering of Jesus occurred at the culmination of the ages, the hinge point in history where the climax of the old covenant reached its culmination in Jesus. Now we've entered into the age of fulfillment, and yet we're still waiting for the wrap-up. The, the beginning of the end has started, it's been inaugurated, but the end of the end has not happened, and that's what we're waiting for. Um, the final moment when Christ himself returns, appears a second time. And so now, having been offered, notice this phrase in verse 28, having been offered once, not over and over, once, to bear the sins of many, all the people who are called to himself and who believe in him, now he's going to appear a second time. This time, it's not to offer himself. This time, it's to bring final and full salvation to those who eagerly await for him. Notice, it's going to bring uh, salvation without reference to sin. He's already dealt with it. He doesn't have to do it again. He doesn't have to deal with sin again. It's been dealt with once for all. Once for all time. Once for all people. And so, he, just as people die once, the Messiah died once. And now, all that's left is for him to return to those who eagerly await him. And so, that's what comes next, is Jesus' return and uh, moving into the final state, the eternal destiny, ultimate salvation, because he's already dealt with sin once and for all. And so, as those in Christ, as followers of Jesus, as, as those who have been united with Jesus into his death, we now have eternal redemption. Sin has been put away. It's been done away with once and for all. No sacrifice any longer is necessary. One sacrifice 
for all time has been offered in the person of Jesus. And that is super good news. We don't need to uh, do anything ourselves to try to deal with our sin. We don't need to constantly uh, bring more sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice was so effective and so complete that not only did it inaugurate a new covenant, but it did so by putting away sin once and for all. Hey, it's John. Thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible by the generous support of everyday people just like you and just like me. And I am so grateful to those of you who faithfully give to make this ministry possible. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you've been blessed or impacted in some way by this ministry and you are in a position where you're able to help, well, you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the uh, Give button up at the top and you can set up a one-time or a recurring donation right there. All monthly donors get uh, access to the study hub and all the other resources inside the hub. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it.